As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. What do you think about when you hear the name James Dolan? Dolan is a man who reacts to his his own volatility. He has a gun, he holds a gun, and he aims it squarely at his own feet. In his 20 years in power at the Garden, the portrait painted of Dolan is of a petulant rich kid who hasn't earned what he has. Charles Dolan needed something for his son to do. And I think that Charles Dolan felt like, you know what, let's give him the Garden. Someone unable to hear criticism, so much that Dolan throws fans out of his building for chanting, sell the team. Dolan comes up to me and he's, you called me an a-hole. I'm like, no, I didn't. I told you to sell the team. Yes, you did. You called me an a-hole. I was like, if I called you an a-hole. A meddler, to put it politely. Dolan will claim that he would be hands-off, but in reality, his fingerprints are all over the Knicks basketball decisions. Whatever the wrong decision is, that's the decision, unfortunately, for Knicks fans that James Dolan has made for 20 years. The worst owner in Sports. Sell the team, Jim. Sell it, because you stink at this. How did Dolan come to be viewed this way? You have to understand, this is the key issue of his life. His whole life, everyone has said to him, you are nothing, and you wouldn't be in the position you're in if not for your father. This episode of Shadow will look at James Dolan. Where did he come from? How did the Dolan family get to be so goddamn rich? And how has James Dolan decided to use the Knicks to make friends and exact revenge on enemies? This is Shattered, Episode 2, The Dolan Family Business. Media innovator Chuck Dolan built an entertainment empire with passion, creativity, and old-fashioned hard work. Chuck Dolan is, a, if you go back and look at the birth of the cable industry, he would be a founding father. Every day he was looking for some program activity. The things he did, nobody did. He is certainly one of the faces on the cable Mount Rushmore. That is the legacy that James Dolan has had to grapple with every day of his life. Chuck Dolan is the definition of a self-made man. 
He started his business uh, in Cleveland with his wife. Bob Wright was the CEO of NBC for two decades. Starting in the 1980s, Wright worked with Chuck Dolan on several business deals over the years and became close with the Dolans over that time. They were taking pictures of sporting events, taking them back to his apartment, went through the process of turning them into photographs. What Wright is describing is Dolan creating ESPN before ESPN. Dolan and his wife Helen would get their hands on video footage from sporting events. Together, they'd cut up a highlights package in their kitchen and then send it out to stations across the country. Those homemade highlights were the seed that would eventually turn into a cable company that would sell for nearly $18 billion. His contribution was, he was technologically proficient. Ken Orletta is one of the most knowledgeable voices on the cable industry. As a writer for The New Yorker, Orletta has covered the media business in his long-running column, The Annals of Communications. He understood that you needed good reception, particularly in cities, and he also understood that you could never compete with broadcasting unless you had programming, and cable initially had no programming. The reason Charles Dolan is on the Mount Rushmore of the cable industry is that he was the primary driver behind two major moments. In the early 1960s, Dolan moved his family to New York. At that time, TV reception was horrible in the city. As Manhattan grew taller and taller, those little annoying rabbit air antennas were having trouble picking up a clear signal throughout the ever-expanding concrete jungle. Dolan found an answer to the problem, but it was an extremely expensive answer. Dig into the ground and install cable lines. To get a sense of how expensive that was, in 1967, Dolan's company spent about $2 million to wire 34 blocks that would end up serving only 400 customers. Chuck was always at the edge financially. He, he is a real gambler, but, but a smart gambler. He would take chances that other people wouldn't when it came to programming. He would just take the chance that other people wouldn't do. Dolan's company, Sterling Manhattan Cable, aggressively laid more and more cable throughout Manhattan. It was a monumental task, one that would pay off down the road. But in the short term, the cost of wiring Manhattan put Dolan into a financial hole. Making things worse was that there just wasn't much on cable worth watching. Dolan was desperate for something special to put onto his cable system. His investors, including most significantly Time Inc., were getting nervous they wasted money on a service no one wanted. So the story goes that Dolan needed to get away. Chuck packed up his family, his wife and six kids, including a young James Dolan. They all got on the ocean liner that was set to sail for France. And while on that transatlantic trip, Dolan dreamed up a premium cable TV channel where for a monthly fee, customers would watch newly released movies and major sporting events. HBO. Now, let HBO be your ticket to the stars. Charles Dolan's second major achievement is that he is the founder of HBO. Home box office debuted in November of 1972. It cost six bucks a month. Originally, only cable subscribers in wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania could get HBO. But even back then, Dolan knew that sports would be a significant driver for building customers. Dolan had worked out a deal with Madison Square Garden to show Nixon Rangers games on HBO. The first HBO subscriber ever told the Associated Press that she signed up for HBO because 
her son was a Knicks fan. HBO proved once again to Chuck Dolan that it was good business to be in the sports business. He, you know, he's just recognized that sports was something that users were always happy to be around. And he, was just, he just didn't have enough money to go out and to buy the Yankees or anything like that. So, you know, he created something that's bigger than the Yankees, <laughs> which is Cablevision. Out of desperation, Chuck Dolan created HBO, forever altering the future of TV. And for all that vision, all that creativity and ingenuity, six months after HBO debuted, Time Inc. bought out Dolan. Chuck is a very intuitively smart guy. He's calm. He could accept defeat. Uh, he would press hard on it, but he could accept defeat. And that's what allowed him to go on and continue to do things. Some people can't accept it, defeat and they want to go away. And he, he was never nasty with people. He's tough with people, but never nasty. Can you imagine if that happened to James Dolan? What his reaction would be if he was forced out of his own creation? So what did Chuck Dolan do? He took his buyout money and started another cable company, which became known as Cablevision. Time Inc., they forced him out. They got HBO. He got the rights to cable in Long Island, which many people considered worthless. <laughs> they didn't have any cable in Long Island at the time. The idea was, why would anybody want to buy cable if they already had te television in, in six or eight channels? What, what do they need cable? He took chances. He was a gam gambler. Tough but never nasty, calm, could accept defeat. Someone who took chances, who made big bets. Bets that ended up paying off huge. Somehow in defeat, Chuck Dolan turned his HBO buyout into Cablevision, which in 2015 sold for $17.7 billion. Some breaking news, though, around consolidation in the cable sector. Let's get to Caroline High. She's got the details. Altice buying up Cablevision. Total enterprise value will be $17.7 billion. So that's including debt for cable. Now, there were times, though, the Chuck Dolan gamble has been went bust. The biggest one we ever did was the Olympics in uh, Spain. We lost $100 million. <laughs> I, I lost 50 and he lost 50. This is the part of the story where James Dolan enters the picture. It was the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. For the first time, professional basketball players from the NBA were being sent to reclaim America's dominance in basketball. Jordan, Magic, Bird, Ewing, the Dream Team. And here in the United States, cable TV was expanded to the point where it was possible for more of the Olympic Games to actually be shown on TV. Chuck Dolan had a wild idea. The most aggressive, unusual programming format ever entered to any sporting event. Chuck Dolan's Cablevision and Bob Wright's NBC entered into a partnership to develop a premium pay-per-view service for the Olympics. It was called TripleCast. Three pay-per-view channels that would broadcast live Olympic events that before then were almost never shown live on TV. We did things, you know, live equestrian. Live dressage. Terry Ewood, the lead producer of the triple cast for the 1992 Summer Games. There's nothing more um, uninteresting to me, but interesting to the narrow cast audience that was watching that than watching dressage on TV. Whatever was shown on primetime TV at the Olympics was heavily edited. The best bits distilled into an easier to digest format. But there were a select group of viewers, a very vocal minority, 
that would bombard the Olympics broadcasters with complaints. And I got letter after letter after letter. And a lot of the letters that I got, complaints I got is, hey, how come we're not doing equestrian, more equestrian coverage? And our yachting, yeah, it was equestrian and yachting were the two that were just complained constantly. Triplecast was meant to satiate the small but passionate fan bases of the more obscure Olympic sports. Three channels, red, white, and blue, would broadcast all kinds of events live. The pay TV service would cost anywhere from $95 to $170 for the 17 days of the Olympics. When you see diving, it's going to be dive after dive after dive after dive. When you watch it on NBC, it's going to see the Americans and a couple of other countries that are really world class. You're not going to see dive after dive after dive after dive. You're not going to see that. That undisturbed presentation created a broadcasting challenge. And it required Ewart to hire commentators who both knew their sports and could talk. I mean, we had Caitlyn Jenner doing live decathlon. Uh, I mean, who does live decathlon and a track mate? It was triple cast that gave Caitlyn and Chris Jenner a boost in their career in television. Chris Jenner, she helped work in the booth because she, she, wa- she was fascinated with the Olympics and she wanted to, she was there to help out as much as she could. Not only was this Caitlyn and Chris Jenner's TV production debut, it was James Dolan's. There's a time in Jimmy's life where, where he was just, he's kind of, lo- he was lost his way a little bit. When Bob Wright says Jimmy lost his way, what he is talking about is James Dolan's addiction to liquor and drugs. In an interview with Sports Illustrated, James Dolan said in the early 90s, abuse of drugs and alcohol turned Dolan into a version of himself that he said he did not like. Dolan told Sports Illustrated that his addiction was rooted in, quote, trying to be somebody else. Eventually, in 1993, Dolan hit rock bottom. Sports Illustrated reported that Chuck Dolan flew him to a rehab facility in Minnesota to get sober. But a year before that, for the Olympics experiment, Chuck Dolan asked Bob Wright, if he could give James a job. Chuck said, gee, will you, would you bring him into the Olympic deal? And I said, sure. And I, and I talked to Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, if you, if you really want to do this, because you're going to have to work very hard and you're going to be working with people and you can't, you can't fire them, you know, and I, these, these are all pros. And he said, yeah, I can, I can do that. I, I can do it. He did, he did it. He came in, you know, I don't, I don't, I think it was difficult for him. He, he, he was being, experiencing things that he had not been involved in before that. This is all producing of the Olympics, but he came out of it pretty good. It, la- it allowed him to step into more activities at Cablevision quickly. Before Triple Cast, the most responsibility Chuck Dolan had given his son James was to run a sports talk radio station in Cleveland. Now putting James in charge of the business side of a $100 million project was a major stepping stone on the way to being named CEO of Cablevision a few years later. To be honest with you, he came in and he was uh, pretty much alpha dog at that point. He wanted to make sure that people understood at this point forward, going forward, he was in charge and that Cablevision was in charge uh, as far as the marketing is concerned, as far as the clearance is concerned. This is what he's going to do. And he was pretty forceful to begin with. You could certainly see leadership in Jim Dolan when he, when he first started. So... Is that the Jim Dolan today? I don't know. 
but uh, you could see that you know there's one alpha dog involved now and it's his his way it was the job of james dolan and his team from cablevision to convince thousands of cable operators across the country to clear three slots in their channel lineups to make room for triple cast and it wasn't like those cable operators could just invent the channels out of thin air they would have to knock out existing channels to get it done all their channels were filled up they said well what do you want me to eliminate do eliminate ESPN2. I'm not going to get rid of ESPN2 to put a, a channel up there for 17 days. And I'm like, why am I going to do that? Triple cast became a flop. It lost $50 million each for Cablevision and NBC. The service failed not necessarily because of James Dolan, but it wasn't exactly a great proving ground in his ascent to the head of the Cablevision throne. Just two years after the triple cast debacle, Chuck Dolan would make an even bigger bet on sports. A bet that he would put his son James right in the middle of. He called me up during that issue because he didn't have enough money to, to do it. And he called me up and he wanted me to be a partner in it. I said, I really would love the idea. I think it's a great idea, but you're going you're gonna to lose money in it for a while. That issue was the Dolan's pursuit of Madison Square Garden and the teams it houses. This might be hard to believe now, after everything we've seen in the past two decades since James Dolan took control of the Knicks. But at least initially, from what Chuck Dolan was telling Bob Wright, the plan was not to make his son James the Knicks' primary decision maker. But Chuck was never running it himself. I mean, he did, that's not his game. The running of the garden was not something that he, he wanted to do. That to him was a, we got to get business people to do that. Then he had them problem with some of the business people and they couldn't get along. And that's why Jimmy kept getting promoted and promoted. And pretty soon Jimmy got the whole thing. That, that, that was a sad thing. There, was, there, there were a lot of good people that, that didn't make it um, for one reason or another. And I, I, it's, you know, they, and, and it, but this is, wasn't like the, he was so eager to have his, his family run it. It just happened. That's the way it ended up. They kept moving this, that, and so forth, and pretty soon they had control of the whole thing. I mean, it's not like that was never the, if you get good people, you stay with them. Every business knows. <laughs> I don't think that many people saw any sort of ominous clouds. Selena Roberts is a former New York Times sports columnist. Nobody really felt like it was going to be that big of a shakeup. I think in looking at the, the Dolan family, one critical element, I think, in the story of, of the Knicks is that, you know, Charles Dolan needed something for his son to do. And I think that there certainly are many accounts of Jim being adrift in the 90s and having some issues in the 90s. And I think that Charles Dolan felt like, you know what, let's give him the garden. And what harm can come from that? And I think that, that what happened was in that big moment where suddenly Jim had this thing, this very sort of uh, big stage, big New York moment that he kind of wanted to own it more than anyone ever imagined. And there were times when I would talk to different officials and different people around the league, and, and they would always say that Jim believes that he is the face of the Knicks. When you have a son who's sort of given this big sandbox to play in and then the next thing you know he thinks that he's building his own castle and that he's the king of the castle that's a very different way to run a team than what Knicks fans were used to. Jimmy wanted my job he may say he didn't but he wanted to run the company. Dave Checkers was one of the primary decision makers behind the Knicks run in the 90s. He was president of the team starting in 1991 Eventually, Checkets was elevated to president of all Madison Square Garden. 
In his 11 years at the Garden, Checkers had four different owners, all of them large corporations. The tentacles of those corporations infiltrated into the basketball operations. There was lots of interference even when Cablevision took over because they have a whole bunch of people who are compensation specialists, they're human resource, accounting, finance, and they, they tried to make it part of their company. And in order to do that, suddenly you get involved in a whole bunch of things that don't involve winning. And my only priority there for almost 11 years was to win. That's because if you don't do that in New York, it really doesn't matter what else you do. And with James Dolan, check its face, the extra layer of interference, powerful interference. Ernie and I were together nine years. I didn't want to fire him. I didn't need to fire him. That was Jimmy that wanted either Jeff or Ernie to go. We spoke about in episode one, how Dolan pushed for Checkets to fire Ernie Grunfeld, the Knicks general manager, because Grunfeld and the Knicks head coach, Jeff Van Gundy, were fighting at the time. But it was another moment with Dolan that really crystallized for Checkets, that the heir to the Cablevision fortune would be incapable of understanding what it takes to run a successful sports team. The Rangers missed the playoffs, and I fired Neil Smith, and I fired John Muckler, the head coach of the Rangers. I fired both of them, because the Rangers were just so bad. It was the end of the 1999-2000 NHL season. The New York Rangers were on their way to finishing out their third straight losing season. It was the last game of the season. It was a home game. We got beat. The Rangers did. And Jimmy, without consulting with me, without saying anything, went into the locker room and said that he was ordering me to spend $30 million on free agents for the Rangers. And that this team would, quote, never miss the playoffs again. Who, who says that? Who does that? I was so angry. I wouldn't speak to him for days. I just didn't want anything to do with him. Because at the time he said, we're going to spend $30 million on free agents, there were 11 free agents in the locker room. He said this to the team. I'm ordering Dave to spend $30 million on free agents. So he basically put us up against the summer with the agents where our lives were going to be pure hell. Everybody thought the slot machine was open. We are just going to pay up. Check it says that moment with Dolan created a culture that showed players New York is where you go to get paid. They didn't come because they cared about helping us win a Stanley Cup. They came for the money. And Knicks fans would see over and over again, Dolan would inject himself into the personnel decisions. Team executives and coaches don't last long because ultimately, there's one person running the show. Just look at the track record. There's a lot of good people that have gone through there and have kind of gotten chewed up and spit out. David Aldridge is a longtime NBA reporter, having worked sidelines for TNT's coverage for a number of years. Aldridge is now a sports columnist for The Athletic. It's just hard. It's hard to work with him. It's not easy because he has ideas and thoughts, and you have to kind of parry with him on that and, and then also try to do what you think is right. Sometimes there's overlap, but a lot of times I think there wasn't or there isn't because, again, his, his goals and your goals may not be the same goals. I mean, lots of people say they want to win a championship, but they don't want to do the kind of scut work that's required to win a championship. You know, it's shiny object, new toy, let's go get that guy. I think that kind of 
was a lot of the Steph thing, a lot of the Marbury thing, because Steph was from Coney Island and it was an easy, it's an easy sell. Let's sell tickets. You know, people, people love Steph in New York. Let's go get Steph. And I think that was part of that calculus back then. And so you bring in people that I don't know you necessarily want, were going to bring in or wanted to bring in, but you, you do what your, what, what your owner wants you to do. And the results speak for themselves. More from Shattered in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless, modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. I will tell you, I'll tell you this one story, which I don't know if it would get me in trouble. I've probably lost my invites to Knicks games. Wyatt Sinek is a comedian and actor who has gotten tickets on Celebrity Row at the Garden. And because of those seats, Sinek was able to get a unique window into how Dolan obsesses over personnel moves. I remember being there once and I was sitting nearby and was in earshot of him. He was talking to his consigliere. The Knicks were playing the Pacers. At the time, Dolan was really infatuated with Kevin Love. During the game, he kept talking about wanting to get Kevin Love. And then one of the Pacers, Miles Turner just came down the court, hit a three, and that's all Dolan saw. And he said, who is that guy? Can we get him? It wasn't like there was a body of work he saw. He just saw a tall man shoot a three and was impressed by it. Rich kid, kind of in a rich kid way, was just like, he good, get him for me. And and it didn't happen because it was like, no, that guy's like, uh, you know, the Pacers aren't going to give up that, that player just because you looked at him and said, I want him. And you don't know his name. Dolan likes running the show, but he doesn't want anyone to know about it. Frank Isola, who covered the Knicks for several years at the Daily News, says Dolan does everything he can to avoid the glaring spotlight of the New York media. You know, the owner is very protective of his image. He does not want 
anything out there. He doesn't want to be quoted. I once had a guy at the garden tell me, if you're ever going to put his name in a story, can you tell me? There was a time where I wrote a story that had nothing to do with Jim Dolan, and I had like a line in there about something. I just mentioned Jim Dolan's name. The person called me up freaking out the next day. I thought I told you to tell me if you're going to mention his name. I said, I didn't write a story about him. It was just a line. Just It would have been like the last three owners of the Knicks are this person, this person, and Jim Dolan, and they were freaking out about that. Isola remembers one time writing a negative story about Dolan and how garden staffers began tailing him like he was a criminal. Their big thing was they were always trying to find people that were leaking stuff to you. That was their obsession. They cared more about leaks than winning. I'm telling you, I had heard some crazy story that Jim Dolan drove up with his driver. Uh, there was like a security guard there. And the rule was nobody gets by without his, li- about it, without his work ID. Jim Dolan did not have his work ID. So the security guy would not let him go. And apparently Jim Dolan hit the roof. He went absolutely crazy. So I mentioned that in like a story. And the next game, I had three people following me around everywhere that I went. And it wasn't conspicuous. They were, maybe they thought I was stupid, but it was so obvious that they were following me everywhere I went. Locker room, press room. It was, it was really bizarre. He's absolutely allergic to controversy. Hates it. He would just as soon have nobody cover this team. Sports Illustrated's Howard Beck covered the Knicks for the New York Times for nearly a decade, starting in the 2004 season. All interviews that they uh, allowed were in group settings and with at least one PR person, sometimes several, standing nearby, listening to all of it, and at least one of them, at that time on a BlackBerry in 2004, typing all the notes on a BlackBerry. And those notes would go to their superiors, which would eventually go to the owner, Jim Dolan, because he wanted to know everything that was said before it ever appeared in the paper. His whole thing was, I don't want to be surprised by anything, whether it was controversial or not, but especially if it might even hint of something provocative or hint of something potentially controversial, he wanted to know. The constant hovering of PR people with Blackberries typing notes was really off-putting and really strange, and no other team in the league operated this way. Beck describes the team's media policy as paranoid, political, corporate. You call it corporate, you could also call it a little fascist. Harvey Arrington has written about the Knicks over a course of several decades, mostly for the Times, as the paper's Sports of the Times columnist. Having certain reporters trailed around the locker room, telling players, warning them about talking to specific reporters. I mean, there have been reports, I don't want to say I've seen these evidence of it, but there have been reports that the Garden has kept dossiers on various reporters and columnists about the things they write. I've been summoned or or called by Nick's PR people uh, after tweeting something, some innocuous crack about the Knicks or Dolan. And a day later, you know, my phone's ringing saying, you know, we need to talk about this. The whole mood around the garden is paranoia. The Knicks media policy, as directed by Dolan, goes further than cold shoulders in policing words. The team's PR staff has even prevented reporters from certain outlets from covering the team altogether. The most bizarre part about it, it's like, why do you care so much about the PR stuff? Like, you should care about the team. Stephen Bondi covers the Knicks for the Daily News. Of all the newspapers in the city, Dolan hates the Daily News the most. Bondi says that hate essentially boils down to Dolan not liking how the Daily News has covered stories about the team in MSG. I took over in 2015, and I don't know what pushed him over the edge. Actually, I do know. It was our back page. So he did an interview with ESPN where he kind of teased at the idea of selling the team. He said he was taking, like, 
people were sending out like feelers for five billion and our back page said ran with the headline do it and it, it kind of the photo in the back page had an unflattering picture of dolan and i think like one of his sons was in the back page too you know with, without us knowing and after that back page ran he decided to take the daily news i.e me out of press conferences and so that set off a whole new, new different thing and then he went on the radio and said that everybody in the organization hates the daily news and nobody wants them there anyway saying all these things that weren't true Bondi was barred from press events that were open to every other reporter in town, including when R.J. Barrett was drafted and had his introductory press conference. It's stupid because, you know, if you're a reporter, you just watch a press conference on TV. Like, it's just stupid not to invite, you know, a major publication covering your team. I think the harder part for me personally was knowing, like, you know, you're trying to cover a team and and uh, talk to people who know like, hey, my boss really doesn't want me to talk to you. Like my, like if I haven't seen talking to you, like I could get fired kind of thing. So that that was harder for me. It doesn't line up with any sense. It, it's more like it just this vindictive thing where it's like, I, 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 if you write something bad about me, I'm gonna get pissed off and I wanna know everything that's happening and I wanna control everything that's going on. And that's kind of how he operates the PR aspect of the team. And it always comes back to bite him. All these many media wars, as Howard Beck points out, transfers the organization's energy in the wrong direction. No team has ever won or lost a game based on its media policies. But I do think it affects people. It affects coaches and and GMs and scouts and players and trainers and others if they don't feel like they can be themselves. And they and you get a sense that this is what this franchise is about. Well, to an extent, it's showing they're worried too much about the wrong things. They're more worried about how they're portrayed in the media or what guys are saying than they are about putting together the right kind of team or hiring the right kind of coach or investing in analytics or investing in sports science. It's an indication of skewed priorities. And it does affect people. I think people were less happy there. And that includes players. You know, a lot of people just consider that a very unhappy place to to work or play. Even famous fans have been victims of Dolan's anger. So much of the stuff is like, I want to share my experience with it openly because I think it's super weird. Also, I know that that it may bar me from going to the garden again. That is Adam Pally, an actor and comedian who has starred in TV shows like The Mindy Project and Happy Endings. Pally is a diehard Knicks fan. And also, like, the Knicks are my life, <laughs> you know? Like, I grew up in New York City and New Jersey in the 80s and 90s. Like, it's a huge deal. And sitting on the wood, like, next to Spike Lee was, like, one of the greatest moments of my life. Pally's fame got him access to elite territory. Free courtside Knicks tickets at the Garden. Some passionate Knicks fans who are celebrities are afraid to speak ill of the owner for fear of losing access to the free courtside seats and pregame buffet. But for Pally... He wasn't afraid to be critical of Dolan, simply because he thought his mild criticism wouldn't rise to the level that it eventually would. I guess I did an interview somewhere semi-critical of ownership, and I wrote a tweet that was a joke, obviously, wanting Puffy to buy the Knicks. And it was relayed not to me, but to my publicist, that I am persona non grata now from the Knicks organization. And I was like, well, what does that, what does that mean? And they were basically like, you're not welcome at the Knicks games anymore. Like if you want to purchase a ticket and go and sit, you know, in, in your father-in-law's seats, you can, but 
we can also remove you at any time. Which is like a nightmare to be like thinking like, oh, I'm gonna go with my son to the Nick game. To be worried that you're gonna be like yanked out by security, Oakley style in front of your kid for like a tweet or, a, or questioning management and ownership is like draconian. Pally said he's tried to reach out to the Knicks a few times, but was stonewalled. I was like, can I come back? And they were like, no, you can't come back. And my publicist had to like go on a campaign for me to lobby with the garden. And then I had to write a letter to the garden apologizing, physical letter. And then I had to take down the tweet. That persona non grata list is serious. You know, like they're, like Michael Rappaport can't get back in the building. Matthew Modine, I think, is on it now. These people who are like Nick fans, it would be a lie to say that I that my heart is in it for them the way that it was, especially with the treatment of Spike and Oakley. It's kind of like being a Kanye West fan now. You know, it's like I love him. It's like <laughs> there's things. And if James Dolan could treat a celebrity fan like Pally. Someone who does have a platform and is able to speak about his experience, Dolan's regard for the common Knicks fan is not any higher. The rage at which he's shouting at me, you know, now in these times of like COVID, right? It's like the, the spittle from just like his emotion is like hitting me in the face, getting on my glasses. It's kind of gross. It was the end of the 2017 season. The Knicks, with Carmelo Anthony and Chris Stapps Porzingis, has slogged through another disappointing season. The most memorable moment from the year, unfortunately, was Knicks legend Charles Oakley getting dragged out of the garden by Dolan's security staff and NYPD officers. The Knicks were getting ready to play the Bulls. Michael Amersky was outside the arena waiting for his friend Raul before heading into the garden. So we're sitting there, standing there technically. Raul's smoking a cigarette. He had a tall boy in his drinking. And Dolan comes out. I'm not, I'm not a tall guy. I'm about 5'9", and he's about up to my nose. Little, little guy Dolan with another guy, some security, walks by me. I just yell, you know, sell the team, Jim. Hamersky says it was just a reaction. He saw Dolan, the person he blames for ruining his favorite team, and he shouted, sell the team. Hamersky thought it would be the end of the interaction, except we're talking about James Dolan. Dolan comes up to me and he's, you know, you cursed, you cursed me, you cursed me. I was like, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I told you to sell the team. And he said, well, that's not very nice. Telling me to sell the team, that's not very nice. I said, honestly, uh, you'd make a lot of money, money. The fans would be happy. It seems like, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Then he goes, you called me an a-hole. I'm like, no, I didn't. I told you to sell the team. Goes, yes, you did. You called me an a-hole. I was like, if I called you an a-hole. I was like, go ahead, man. Uh, and he said, you know, how would you like it if I came to your office and stood in front of your building and told all your clients that you're an a-hole? Because that's what you are. You're an a-hole. Dolan then told Hamersky that he wasn't going to allow him to come into the garden for the game that night. So he accuses me of drinking. I had not been. And then he basically, you know, instructs his security to, to not let me in. You know, fight or flight. I just start walking. He being Dolan motions to one of his other body men or whatever. It's kind of like a squat meatball looking dude. You know, bald head. Follow him. Don't let him in. So this guy like... Go to 31st Street, make a left, go to 7th Avenue, make a right, he's still following me. Go to 30th Street, make a right towards 8th Avenue. He does not follow me around that corner. You know, I call Raul on my cell phone, we meet up, we go to the game, we have a wonderful time. Hamersky became a minor celebrity after his run-in with Dolan. He was even interviewed by ESPN legend Bob Lee. 
on Outside the Lines. Dolan and a verbal confrontation with the next season ticket holder, Mike Hamerski, was in the eye of the storm. Hi, Bob. First, uh, thanks for having me. But one. this increased level of notoriety put a bullseye on Hamerski's back. After that interview with Bob Lee, Hamerski noticed on LinkedIn that someone from Madison Square Garden had visited his personal page. So, you know, you get one of those Monday morning LinkedIn, you know, spam emails like people are looking at your profile. So I clicked on it and there were like 30 unique views from people from the Madison Square Garden Company. Soon thereafter, Pomersky called his ticket rep with the Knicks to renew his season tickets. He learned that Dolan seemed to follow through on his threat to blacklist Pomersky from the garden. So I had like a season ticket rep. She was super, super nice. And I'm I'm sure she had nothing to do with this. I'm not even going to say her name. I called her to effectively renew. No answer emailed her, no response, you know, crickets. I logged into like mynicks.com, right? Which is where your season ticket dashboard. And it said like, no such account with this name exists. I'm like, all right, sums up. So then I call, you know, the general number, 1-800-NICKS, whatever it is. Got a very nice uh, person on the phone. She's like, oh, that's weird. Like we're showing that there is an account with your name on it. Like, let me put you on hold. And the line seemingly gets disconnected. And again, I'm like, benefit of the doubt, call right back. Hey, you know, this is Mike Mersky. I was just on the phone, hung up on me. Call right back. Pick up, hang up, pick up, hang up. All right, well, I'm clearly not getting my tickets back. Hamerski yells, sell the team. The garden pulls his tickets. But Dolan is flexible when it comes to how he exacts revenge. In 2020, Max Rose was running for re-election in Congress. I'm Max Rose, and you better believe I approve this message. Because no matter what happens... The Democrat represented all of Staten Island and a tiny slice of Brooklyn. During the campaign, Rose stated that Dolan should sell the Knicks. Dolan did not let the remark pass. Through MSG Sports, Dolan donated $50,000 to help Rose's challenger, Republican Nicole Maliotakis, to take his seat in Congress. It's the latest embarrassment out of James Dolan. That is Andrew Yang, now a candidate for mayor of New York City. He spoke with us before announcing his run for mayor. Yang is also a Knicks fan. The fact that now criticizing the Knicks is somehow a political offense such that he'll use it as justification to raise money for your opponent. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like literally 80% of Knicks fans feel the same way Max (laughs) does. Thank you, Max, for saying something painfully obvious. And thank you to Dolan for demonstrating yet again uh, that he has incredibly thin skin and the emotional maturity of a young child. (laughs) But to fully understand James Dolan, we have to look at his life outside basketball. It's a life where Dolan is a traveling musician, part of a group bouncing around the country from gig to gig, an opening act for better-known bands. Tonight's guests join us just before packing things up and hitting the road once more. Please welcome J.D. and the Straight Shot. They were living the lives of headliners, traveling by jet. These guys were, they were living first class. The guys that journalist Dave McKenna is talking about are the members of James Dolan's band, J.D. and the Straight Shot. Dolan has said himself in an interview with McKenna for Deadspin in 2016 that being on stage with his band is where he's the happiest. The combo he had at the time was incredibly accomplished. They played with Nashville's you know, finest. I don't know, you know how, how they would, if you got them, hooked them up to a lie detector, how they would feel about their situation. It was kind of like, a, you know, a, like this guy's fantasy camp for rock and roll or fantasy camp for, to be a rock star. 
but he, he put everything into it. They see, he seemed to, be, to treat them very well. They were jetting to Biloxi. They weren't busing, whereas most opening acts would, would be you know, looking for a couch to sleep on. But in the pyramid of success in the music industry, J.D. and the Straight Shot should be right around the bottom. According to McKenna's story, the band's 2016 album titled Ballyhoo sold just 113 copies in its first three months. But of course, it doesn't matter how few albums J.D. and the Straight Shot sell. Their front man is a billionaire. He's the richest touring musician in the world by like a billion dollars. And, you know, Paul McCartney is second, you know, like a billion dollars behind him or something outrageous, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars behind him. And yet he, he goes around, he plays in front of nobody's in Biloxi, Mississippi, or opens for Jewel for uh, 40 minutes in Washington, D.C. Like, you know, that's what I would do if I had billions of dollars. Like I said, he took a wonderful situation and made it better. McKenna covered one of Dolan's concerts in D.C., and the James Dolan that he met was different from the ones Nick fans are used to seeing. He never completely let go. Um, he wanted to keep of, of his suspicions, but but I don't think he you know he hid too much from me. He vaped in front of me, you know. That was a <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't try to hide that. Dolan's obsession with music is who Dolan is at his core. His first guitar, like he, he still has his first guitar and he sent me pictures of it that he got with, with money he made as a teenager mowing lawns, he said. It was a Gibson uh, acoustic. It was a definitely a, a good guitar, the sort of guitar played by Bob Dylan in the 60s and stuff. It added humanity from, from my end. This is to hear like a guy, a kid mowing lawns with one goal and that's to get a guitar and that he still keeps. That's cool. It's, you know, a rosebud. That's his rosebud. Think about that for a second. James Dolan is the son of Chuck Dolan. Chuck Dolan is now a billionaire. James has lived off his father's wealth his entire life. And as Dolan's family friend, former NBC CEO Bob Wright tells us, when James showed an interest in yachting, Chuck was happy to pay up. There was a time when I, in the uh, 80s, when I was very close to Dolan, his sons were interested in sailing. Jimmy got interested in it. He started to race bigger and bigger boats. And then he had to have bigger and bigger boats. And there was a time when Jimmy was buying and having made boats that were probably $20 million, maybe $30 million. They were fiberglass. They're made in uh, Newport. And then he would take these things and go to international races. They had to fly the, the boat over in big, huge cargo planes. <laughs> This, that, that thing went on for about 10 years, and I think everybody that did it lost so much money it broke up. <laughs> Chuck Dolan was willing to spend tens of millions of dollars to encourage his son's yachting habits. But when it comes to getting a guitar, Dolan had to mow lawns. They did not encourage it. And this is a guy trapped in his, he's following the family business. Almost like if he were a dairy farmer, he'd have to be, if his dad were a dairy farmer, he'd have to be a dairy farmer. His dad is a mogul, so he has to be a mogul. That's still confining. And it was clear, and then guitar was, you know, he said like they never supported it. And even like he had a couple lines, you know, a couple times where he, he seemed genuinely perturbed as anyone would have, you know, if he holds bitterness about their parents. It's that no one else, you should never tell anyone else you're, you're bitter at your parents. They don't. Nobody wants to hear it. But he, he's bitter about the uh, the lack of support for his rock and roll. And so there's this version of James Dolan that does exist. A guy who just wants to be on stage with his guitar. He is also a charitable person. The Dolan family started the Les Garden Foundation, 
named after a family friend who died from pancreatic cancer. The foundation has invested nearly $200 million in pancreatic cancer research. So yes, of course, James Dolan isn't all bad. And what we're dealing with in this series is more than just how James Dolan has been as the owner of the Knicks. We're going to take a look at each era of the team over the past two decades, the moments of hope, and why ultimately each era ended in disappointment. But the story of the Knicks over that time cannot be told without understanding Dolan's influence. And how Dolan has chosen to exert his influence over the franchise will be a central theme throughout. In the next episode of Shattered, we'll look at Isaiah Thomas's run as Knicks team president. I'd never seen nothing like it before in my life. And you walk in there and you witness some of the things you witness, you're like, oh, I mean, as soon as I got there, I felt like, oh, something is not right. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcasts and check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage. Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D., Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. J.P. Hesser is the engineer. Tayo Papula is the audio editor. The Athletic reached out to James Dolan and Madison Square Garden for comment about events discussed in Episode 2, and they declined to comment.